when. <clears throat> All right, so I'm probably going to have to go to a third week with, uh, uh, with 2 Samuel. I, I tried to get it done in week two, but I just got stuck on some stuff. So we're going to probably do a third week and finish up 2 Samuel next week. Uh, but uh, 2 Samuel 11. And uh, again, just to refresh, because it's been a few weeks, and some folks that I know are busting my chops, like, oh, you still remember how to preach? Because you, you've been uh, taking it off a few weeks. Uh, you know, I said, I know, I know, I know. I'm going to give it a shot. Get the cobwebs out, I guess. So um, uh, 2 Samuel is a history of the kingship of David. That's what's happening historically. It's about David's rise to power and his kingdom. But we said spiritually it's a lesson for us because David's life pictures the believer's life. And uh, this is a nice little way to also think about it. You have his triumphs in chapters 1 to 10, and then you have his troubles in chapters 11, 24, which is really the book cut in half. And uh, in that second grouping, which we're going to try to explore now, we've got his trespass in chapters 11 to 12, his troubles in chapters 13 to 20, and then his testimony before he dies uh, uh, before Solomon takes power in chapters 21 to 24. But what I want you to see is how instructive even the chapters are. Because the whole book, my brethren, hangs and turns on David's sin. David's trespass in chapters 11 to 20 is not only the center of the book, right, 1 to 24, it's also the turning point of David's whole life and David's whole experience. I mean, in chapters 1 to 10, we said that was David before Uriah, and there is nothing said negative about David. He is just commended and, and, and blessed and applauded and esteemed by the Holy Spirit, and he's just like rising and, and thriving, and everything is going great. And then you got David against Uriah, and then those latter chapters uh, where you see David after Uriah, nothing bad is said before, and plenty bad happens after. So before we even open up this section, you got to see that sin will be the hinge on which your whole success or failure will turn, right? It, it's the turning point of David's life. It's the turning point of our lives, right? That, that's going to be the difference. That's going to be the knob that turns the door open or the door shut in terms of your life. Of course, there's redemption and there's mercy like David has, but that's, that's going to be the difference. And, you know, for those people out there that think they need the Greek and the Hebrew, may I remind everyone that the Greek and the Hebrew, and the Hebrew in this case, did not have chapter markings, did not have verse markings. So he put those in the Holy Spirit way later. So now we're holding a King James Bible with chapters, and we can say, wow, what a blessing. The middle of the book, chapter 11 and 12, is the turning point of David's life. If you were sitting there staring at the Masoretic text, you would have no idea where you were in the book. You'd be just going like this, you know, not left to right, right to left, and just wondering, you know, all the letters rolled together. So thank God that he gave us the Bible in English the way he did. Amen? So let's go to chapter 11 and, and chapter 11 and 12. <clears throat> And we call this David's trespass in chapters 11 and 12. This is David against Uriah. And let's start with 2 Samuel 11, 1. 2 Samuel 11, 1. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when the kings go forth to battle. We could call this 
David's fatal furlough, right? A furlough is like when a missionary comes off the field. David should have been fighting. He was a king. You see it? At the time when the kings go forth to battle. David wasn't battling. David was hanging out and messing around, and he got himself in trouble. He was a king. He should have been fighting the good fight that God had for him, and he wasn't, and he got himself in trouble. That's why we call this David's fatal furlough, his big mistake. Now, why are we pointing this out? David is a picture of your life as a believer, right? Amen? Just nod. Amen. Amen. The Bible says in Revelation 1.5, you're a king. Jesus Christ has made us kings and priests. Hey, are you loafing or are you laboring? Because if you're loafing for yourself when you should be laboring for the Lord, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Somebody said a long time ago, it's not a Bible verse, but it's good advice. Idle hands are the devil's playthings. And David is exuding that right here. He's pacing around when he should be sleeping after a hard day of fighting. And he's looking at stuff he shouldn't have looked at. He's thinking things he shouldn't have thought. And he's conceiving stuff he never should have conceived. Because he should have been fighting. He should have been laboring for the Lord. And he's loafing around. Look at verse 2. And it came to pass in an evening tide. Nighttime. David should have been resting from battle, not checking out Bathsheba. He should have come home, taken off his armor, had some meal with his men, and just kind of gone to sleep. And there's a principle there. You know the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, he told Adam, you got work to do, Adam. And he said, cursed is the ground for thy sake. He said, David, you're going to have to go out there by the sweat of your brow and till that land and get bread, because if you don't, you're going to get yourself in all kinds of devilment. There's something good about a hard day's work, and you come home, kiss your family, eat something, and you got no more strength than to sit around for a little while, fellowship with your friends or your folks or whatever, and just go to sleep. And David is just, he's idle, he's not fighting, and he's messing around. Work will keep you out of trouble. The Lord's work, physical work, it's a good thing. To bear the yoke like that. Amen. Now, I want you to notice verse 6 to 13. Because now we're going to see the great contrast between King David and the servant Uriah. Let's read verse 6. Now, David has done what David did. And David's now he's starting to plot. Now he's covering his tracks. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto, da- unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did. And how the people did, and how the war prospered. You know, making some small talk, right, before you lay your net. And David said to Uriah, go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down into his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then doth, didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. So we know the story, right? David has gotten Bathsheba pregnant, 
and he's got to get Uriah to go be with his wife so he could cover his tracks. But I want you to notice, number one, the contrast between David and Uriah. Number one, Uriah never stopped seeing himself as the Lord's servant. You see that? He says, you want me to go do this when all the servants of the Lord are encamped in battle? I'm a servant. I'm supposed to be in battle. I can't just go back and enjoy the pleasures of my home. You know what I think happened to David? David got proud. David's like, I'm the king. I can have any, anything I want, any woman I want. I don't need to go out and battle. I'm above that now. I'm in power now. I've arrived. But Uriah never stopped seeing himself as a servant. And you and I, no matter what influence, what office, what anything, however long you're saved, never stop seeing yourself as a servant. Uriah never stopped seeing himself as a servant. David got a little full of himself, I think. Said, I don't need to fight this one. You boys go do that. And he paid a price. Number two, I see in verse 11, that Uriah never put himself before the mission. He said, guys, we're at war. My boys are out there fighting. There's a fight to happen. I can't stop fighting. I got to be with my men. I got to be in the fight. I got to be in the thick of it. I can't take a furlough now. I can't take a low over now. He never put himself before the mission. You know what happened to David? David got selfish. David wanted to enjoy what he saw and he was willing to throw everything away, God, the ministry, the kingdom, his testimony. Why? So he could enjoy a moment of pleasure for himself. Uriah wouldn't put himself before the mission. And when you and I get selfish like David, we can mess a lot of stuff up. David is, Uriah is a great example. And if you look at verse 13, now he tries to get him drunk. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on it, uh, to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. Can I please tell you, Uriah had more character drunk than David did sober. It's terrible. This is David. This is the man after God's own heart. What a travesty. Why? Because he got proud, he got selfish, and his character went to pot where a drunk guy had more integrity than the king of Israel. Now, look at verse 14. Now it's getting more complicated. He's tried to get him to go see his wife. Now he's trying to get him drunk because that lowers your inhibitions. And you do things oftentimes when you're drunk that you wouldn't do when you're sober, but he still wouldn't do it. And now he's going to DEFCON 1, right? 14. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab. So now he's going to say, all right, we're going to put Joab, we're going to put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle where valiant men were, and we're going to get him killed. Do you see what David is doing? Do you see how complicated it becomes when you try and cover your sin? Sir Walter Scott, hundreds of years ago, said a saying I think you've all heard. Oh, what a wicked web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And it's just like lie upon lie, twist upon twist. And then you got this quagmire of just this net of this nest of, of lies. And David, I mean, David, this is the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's getting an innocent man killed, not just sent to a different mission. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's getting a man killed. Why? To protect his, his reputation to protect his image, to protect his integrity, you know, to save face and kind of get away with his dastardly deed. It's quite an illustration. 
The Bible says, he that covereth his sins shall not prosper. And if you jump to verse 20, uh, look at verse 2 again. Look at the end of verse 2. You say, how did this start? Look at verse 2. <clears throat> the, end, the middle of verse. And he walked up on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. This whole sin started with a look. The lust of the eyes. That's where it started. Genesis 3, verse 6. You know the verse. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. What is that again? The lust of the eyes. What did the devil do to Jesus Christ? Look at all the kingdoms of the world. The lust of the eyes. You've got to be really, really careful. Lamentation says this, familiar verse, Mine eye affecteth mine heart. You've got to be really careful who or what you look at. Whether it's your neighbor's car, somebody's this, the girl down the street, the guy up the block, the one. You've got to watch what you're looking at because that stuff you let in your eye gate, it gets down into your heart, man, and it can mess around with you. I don't think that was the first time David saw Bathsheba. I'm sure he knew she was up there, because why would you go up on your roof? He probably saw her once. He said, I'm not going to go to battle tonight. I'm just going to turn on Skinamax, and I'm going to go up on top of the, to the roof there, and I'm going to just take a look at something there. And it's just, you know, that wheel starts turning. It's going in the eye gate, and it's going in his heart, and he's starting to conceive things that the king of Israel never would have conceived. You want a practical note about this? Men, to be very, men tend to be attracted to what they see. That's why, and this is where I'll just leave it, that's why statistically there is a porn gap. Men are looking at stuff that women don't tend to have as much of a problem with because guys are very attracted by what they see. They're drawn to what they see. Shiny cars, somebody walking down the street, right? Guys are very drawn to what they see. Women tend to be drawn to what they hear. That serpent whispered in her ear, and was able to seduce her, right? I'm just telling you, I'm just going Bible, guys. It's just Bible, right? You've all seen it. I've said it before. You've all seen a beautiful woman walking with, like, a dog, and you're like, how did that guy get that girl, right? You know, like, this Vinny Boombats over here. What is he saying to this, to this sweet lady over here? Because he, he just talked. He just flapped, you know? And uh, men, the admonition is, you better watch what you let in your eye gate because it'll affect your heart, whether it's covetousness or anything else. And can I just say this, ladies? Have mercy on your brethren, right? Be mindful of your modesty, you know, because guys are weak, right? They're just like, you know, they're going to be drawn to stuff. So if you're not for sale, don't advertise, right? Just kind of like, just save it for your husband, amen? Thank you, you're welcome. All right, go to verse 27. Let me move past that point before I sweat anymore. Go to verse 27. Now, he get, it looks like he gets away with it. I love this. He looks like he gets away with it. All right, Uriah is dead. Bathsheba's here. I take her to be my wife. But I love the way 27 ends. I love the way the chapter ends. It says, And when the morning was past, meaning Uriah's mourning for uh, your, uh, Bathsheba's mourning for Uriah, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. And the verse doesn't stop there. God says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That is a great 
great verse. When you think you got away with it, when you think somebody else got away with it, just know the Holy Ghost is watching. And if you're saved, don't ever think you get away with anything with God. You may have gotten off scot-free and nobody on planet Earth saw it. God saw it. And if God is displeased, God is going to take care of His children. And the Bible says in Proverbs 15, 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And you trace that phrase, the eyes of the Lord, it's connected to His Spirit. And that Spirit that inspired that verse is the Spirit that sees you in the dark, sees you doing things when nobody else sees, and says, I'm pleased or not pleased. (laughs) That Spirit, those eyes are watching. Amen? That scares me. That should scare you. Right? Be sure your sin will find you out. And that's, that's the key idea of this book. When we started this a couple of weeks ago, we said the main idea is be sure your sin will find you out. And that's the key idea that we see in David's life we've got to see in our life. Now look at verse chapter 12, verse 1. What does God do? What He usually does when you and I do something stupid. And the Lord sent Nathan. So Nathan pictures the Word of God. Nature, Nathan is the preacher. And he pictures the Word of God. He's the preacher of God. And notice what happens. When you're doing something that God's not pleased with, you know what he sends? He sends the Word of God to convict you. Whether it's through a message or through something you read, that Word, that mouthpiece of God is there to get in your face a little bit convict you, present you with what you're doing to kind of redeem you and restore you and help you. Amen? Now, how does this happen? Now, you know the story of of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and nobody can interpret it but Daniel. And Daniel gives the interpretation, you know, the the head of gold and the chest of, uh, well, the breast, I forget, silver and brass and iron and miry clay mixed with iron, all that stuff, which I'm not going to get into now, those times of the Gentiles. But then Nebuchadnezzar says something to Daniel, and he says in in Daniel 2.47, he says, Your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets. That's what God is. He's a revealer of secrets. You see, how does God reveal secrets? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Here's how God reveals secrets. First Corinthians 14, look at verse number 23. Now he's talking about people talking in tongues like a bunch of crazies. And he says, that's not going to really help if you guys all just sit around and bark like dogs and, you know, you know, untie, bow tie, find my pajama, and you just say all this stuff that nobody understands. It's not going to be helpful. But he says in verse 23 of 14, If therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say you're mad? If I walk over here and you're going, and you're going, and you're going, you know, and I'm walking in and I see that this is your church service? You guys are nuts. You guys drank the Kool-Aid. This is like heaven's gate. I'm out of here. Right? But he says in verse 24, but if they all prophesy, declare something God has said, that's what prophesying is, but if they all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all, and watch this, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. 
And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you over truth. You see, he said, you walk in, you see everybody going, and you see that, you know what's going to happen? People are going to go, I'm out of here. This is crazy. But they walk in and a guy gets up there and starts saying, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, thus saith the Lord. That Holy Spirit coming from that Bible and coming out of that guy's mouth in those words is going to search his heart. You know what he's going to sit there and go? Who told the preacher about me? How did he know? Whereas, if anybody's like me, they're dumb as a rock. I have no idea what anybody's going on in anybody's life. I'm just trying to teach 2 Samuel or teach John, whoever's teaching what. But the Holy Spirit is taking those words and revealing the secrets of your heart. So you fall down and go, I need to get saved. I need to get right. That's how God reveals secrets. So he sends Nathan to what? Preach a message to David. Why? To reveal something secret in his heart that he had to see. That's why you don't like preaching when you're in sin. Amen? I mean, I don't like to hear it. When I'm wrong, I don't like to hear it. That's why, hey, that's why you stop going to church when you're not walking right. We all make mistakes. Nobody walks on water, but you want to try to get better. If you fall, you want to get better. That's a blessing. But some people that don't want to get better and want to stay in the pig pen, guess what? Pretty soon, they stop coming to church. Because at church, you know what's going to happen? We're going to open up the Bible. We're going to preach the Bible. We're going to say, thus saith the Lord. And that spirit of this book and those words are going to just search the heart. That's why people cut and run. That's why people say, oh, I'm not coming there anymore. Because you preach the Bible straight. You preach it the way it's written, where it's written, just as the Bible says. You know what's going to happen? It's going to like, it should, it should, it should reveal the things in your heart. It's God's like method of revealing the secrets of your heart. So you say, Lord, I don't know if I'm right with you today. You sit down, the message comes in and the Holy Spirit goes, that's what you got going on in your heart. And then you decide, well, do I want to get right? Or am I just going to shut the Bible and walk out the door? Right now, keep reading with me. Go back to chapter 12 of second Samuel. Does that make sense? All right. Amen. I mean, very instructive. This is why I got stuck on some of this stuff. Second, now, now I'm not going to go through all of it. Nathan gives this parable of the selfish man. He kind of gives this illustration. And then he raises that bony finger. He points at David in verse 7. <clears throat> and Nathan said to David, famous line, right? Thou art the man. So after the parable of the selfish man, the preacher Nathan points out David's guilt. He says, buddy... That story was about you. And then he goes on to say some other things. Now watch this. Verse 8. Verse 8. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. If it had been too little, I would have moreover given unto thee such and such things. You know what he points out next? He points out the goodness of God that David had scorned. God's been good to you. If you wanted this woman, you could have prayed. And God's like, I would have given you the woman you wanted. But you scorned the goodness of God. You thought too highly of yourself. You thought that you forgot that I was the one that was blessing you. He's like, did you forget chapter 7 where you sat down and said, wow, God, you've been so good to me. You waited four chapters to run around like a junkyard dog. And he's saying, you scorned my goodness. And he's pointing that out. Then in verse 9. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord. He points out the sin and he points out the source of the sin. He says, you know why, David? You know the Bible, but you despised it. You think too little of it. 
You're supposed to be a man after my heart. You're supposed to be the sweet psalmist of Israel. You're supposed to be the one that knew the Bible so well. You might know it in your ears, but you not know it in your heart. You're, you're, you're thinking too low of it. And then in verse number 10 to 12, he pronounces God's judgment upon David's house. And he tells him, like in the parable, David said, that man that stole that little ewe lamb, he's going to pay fourfold. And he tells him, see verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house. He says, you're going to pay, and David pays fourfold. You want to count them? Number one, the baby dies. The baby that's conceived between Bathsheba and Solomon dies. That's one. Number two, his daughter Tamar is raped by her half-brother Amnon. And in the Old Testament, rape had the same penalty as murder. So he might as well have killed her, right? That's two. Number three, that son Amnon is killed by Absalom's servants. That's three. That happens in chapter 13. Because Absalom's taking vengeance on his sister Tamar, who Amnon raped. So the sword is not departing from David's house. He brought all this trouble to his own house. And the number four, his son Absalom is killed in battle sometime later by Joab's men and servants. One, two, three, four. You can't beat it with a stick. The Bible's always going to come true. You can't beat it. You know, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. He says, you sow into the flesh... You're going to reap corruption. You said you got to pay fourfold? You're going to pay fourfold, buddy. You're going to pay fourfold. Now, I just thought about this practically. What boldness Nathan had. He walked up to the king. You know, David could have killed him on the spot. David could have had this guy thrown in prison, just executed, you know, thrown to the hogs, whatever you want to do. You know what that teaches me? That if you're going to preach, you can't respect persons. If you're going to preach, you can't look at who you're talking to, what you're talking to. You can't respect persons if you're going to preach. Nathan didn't. So let's look at verse number 13. Now look at 13. And David said unto Nathan... David, and now I'm not just impressed by Nathan, I'm impressed by David. Because as dumb as David was, David received this. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, period. End of story. That is an amazing and honest response from David. He could have gotten mad. He could have said, because nobody knew. He could have said, come here and pulled a dagger out and killed him, he could have called for Job and said, uh, get this guy, this guy's threatening me, throw him in the dungeons, throw him in the stocks, get him executed. But you know what he did? He hung his head and he said, you're right. I sinned not against Bathsheba, not against Uriah. I have sinned against the Lord. That's an amazing response. Now, I want you to notice the contrast between King Saul and King David. The preacher went to King Saul. You remember 1 Samuel 15? We don't have to flip there, but he tells him to kill the Amalekites. And he doesn't kill the Amalekites. And he says, you you know, you did all this, you did all this. And and the preacher Samuel reproves him. You're going to lose the kingdom. You know, you didn't obey the commandment of the Lord. You know what Saul says? Saul says this, a type of the flesh. Saul says, I have sinned, yet honor me now. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did some bad, but come on. I mean, it's not that bad. I'm a good guy. You know me. 
You know what that is? You know what Saul does? Saul does self-justification. That's the flesh. I've sinned. I did wrong. But come on. Hook a brother up. I mean, come on. That's Saul. David says, I have sinned against the Lord, period. That's self-accusation. So I got to ask myself, I was thinking about this, and I said, how do I respond? How do you respond when the Word of God points out your sin? Are you like Saul? Everybody's doing it. Come on. Are you like David? I have sinned against the Lord. Right? I want to be like David, don't you? Amen. Now, Go to, ver- go to Psalm, uh, go to, no, stay in, thar- stay in 13. I'm sorry, look at verse 13 again. So look at Nathan's response. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Why did he say that? He said that because David had some sure mercies coming to him. This is the blessedness of this sin not being imputed or charged to David. You understand, my brethren, that under the law, there was no sacrifice for adultery and murder. That's why they wanted to stone a lady in John 8, right? Oh, she was caught in adultery in the very act. There was no sacrifice or turtle dove or lamb or something you could bring. You were a dead man. David saying, I have sinned against the Lord in that way, was him acknowledging, I deserve to die. That's why David says, Nathan says, you're not going to die. The Lord has put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. God gave David a special mercy, the sure mercies of David, because of the covenant he made with David. Now go to Psalm 32, and David actually writes about this in the psalm. Psalm 32, look at verse 1. Okay, Psalm 32, look at verse 1. Ready? A Psalm of David. Does your Bible say a Psalm of David? It should, if you have the little thing at the top. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. The Lord is showing David mercy he did not deserve. David, as an Old Testament Jew, could have died and should have died for that adultery and murder. But God gave him a special mercy. And because God gave him a special mercy, go to Romans chapter 4, when the Apostle Paul is trying to get an illustration of the blessedness we have, he reaches back to Abraham and David. And and let's look at David in Romans chapter 4. Let's just look at this. Because this should give you a little shout. Because you know what? You deserve to die for your sin. You and I deserve to die for sinning against the Lord. The wages of sin is death. There is no reason why God should have had mercy on you. He could have killed you and sent you to hell and been perfectly justified and clear in the judgment courts. But the same way he gave a mercy to David, God says, Paul says, he gave a mercy to you so you could be blessed. And in Romans 4, Paul picks up on it. In Romans 4, 5, he says this, But to him that worketh not... But believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Can we get an amen right there, right? Salvation apart from works, right? To him that worketh not. You got a guy that you're dealing with that thinks you get saved by works? Whip out Romans 4 like a bazooka and just look at verse 5. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. God will make somebody right today 
because they believe on Jesus Christ as the atonement for their sins. Hallelujah! Amen. Keep reading. Even as, see, there's the similitude, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. He's quoting Psalm 32. He's saying, there's a great picture of your salvation, folks. You've sinned against the Lord. You deserve to die, but God showed you mercy because of Jesus Christ. Now go back to Psalm 32. I want to show you something Paul leaves out, though, for a reason. There was something about David that kind of qualified him for that mercy. See Psalm 32, verse 2? Watch this real careful. Paul leaves this part out because this part wouldn't apply to us. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. That's what God did, right? Psalm 32, 2. And in whose spirit there is no guile. See, David was blessed on a personal level because he had an honest heart before God. No guile, no trickery. No deception, no double talk, no double speak, no trying to rationalize. Nathan said, thou art the man. You've despised the commandment of the Lord. You know what David said? I've sinned against the Lord. God said, that is a guileless sinner. That guy is honest. He's honest enough, even though he's king, to hang his head and say, Lord, I've sinned against you. Even like a prodigal son, right? In the pig pen, he never said, you know who my father is? He just said, I've sinned against heaven. Right? Like Joseph, right? The great, the great Joseph. When that lady tried to come on to him, he said, How can I do this thing and sin against God? You know, these people had no guile. And God holds up David. He says, David had no guile. His spirit had no guile. When he was wrong, he knew he was wrong. And he admitted he was wrong. And God said, I'm going to show you mercy, David. You know what that teaches me? That if we would just own it, God would take care of it and fix it. Amen. It's all the like that just prolongs the agony. If we just own it before God and say, Lord, I've sinned against you. Amen. You know what happens? God says, hey, I love mercy. I delight in mercy. I've got buckets of mercy. I'm ready to pour it out. But if you're going to sit there and keep holding on to the fact that you're right and the preacher's wrong or this guy's wrong or you're, you're just justifying, God's like, I can't give you mercy. You don't think you're wrong. Yeah. But if you would have no guile and just be straight with me and say, I've sinned against you, Lord. He said, I could give you mercy. I delight in that mercy. Look, we're all sinners. We've all sinned against God. What's the difference between a saved sinner and a lost sinner? The lost sinner is still lost because when you present the gospel, they got guile in their heart. Well, that's just the way you look at it. Well, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm not like everybody else. I go to church. I, I help my grandmother. And God's like, you got guile in your heart. I can't show you mercy. I can't bless you with this forgiveness. You don't think you've sinned. Hey, all the parents in the room are going to say amen. It's hard to give your child mercy when he or she is not honest about the sin against you. Right? Did you do that? You know, the, the cookie jar is broken. The chocolate is all over their fingers. It's all over their face. Did you reach into the cookie jar? I don't know. I don't know. Did the dog do it? I mean, maybe every, but every, all, the, all my brothers and sisters do it. How can I give that person mercy? That person needs, like, that's, they need harshness, right? Because they don't see the gravity of their sin. And you and I got the blood all over our hands. Uh, we got the sin all over our face. We've, we've tasted. We've touched. We've done all this stuff. And God's like, would you own it? 
If you don't it, God's like, I give you mercy. But if you're going to sit there and keep rationalizing and like trying to double speak, double talk, and try to get around the fact that you've sinned, this is why the message isn't popular. This is why church is impact on Sunday. The message is, the first part of the gospel, Christ died for our sins. It's negative. It's you got to own the fact that God is right and you're wrong. You got past that fact, God will open up the doors of heaven and just bless you exceeding abundant. But if you're like, well, that's the way you look at it. I don't really like that Bible. That's a little harsh. Pat gets a little too emphatic, you know, a little too, too aggressive. You know, if, I mean, if you get like, make all these excuses up in your head and ignore the fact that I have sinned against the Lord, you can't expect mercy. I thought of myself, how much more mercy would we get if we'd be more honest about our mistakes before God and our sins before God? Amen. Right? He's abundant in mercy. Now go back to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 13. Here's another lesson from 2 Samuel. A lot of good lessons from this book, and I'm circling the wagons. I'm doing good tonight. All right, 2 Samuel 13. And whenever there's a 13, you should like put a mental exclamation point in your head, like, oh, 13, because this is rebellion. So the lesson out of chapter 13 is this. Don't be seduced by the devil's subtlety. I love you, especially you here. I'll be extra nice to you. But if you're watching from home, or you're just a Christian that, you know, we don't, doesn't go to church here. I, I don't know. I just want to say this about Christians in general. They're some of the dumbest people on the planet. They think God, they think the devil is like going to show up with a, like a fire-breathing dragon. He shows up as a friend. What Bible are you reading? He showed up at that tree as an angel of light. He didn't show up as a menacing monster. Yeah, we see stuff that's like menacing and it scares us. But when he really wants to seduce and do his work, you know the first word given to the devil is? He's called a serpent. A subtle, sly, crafty, uh, cunning, deceitful, treacherous, wily, sneaky, insidious being. That's the way he rolls. That's Satan's way. And Christians think, oh, how could a Bible be corrupted? What are you talking about? How could a Bible be corrupted? What do you think the devil? You think the devil's over there in, in the East Village? No, the devil's in the halls of academia attacking the Word of God. That's where he is. You think he's in the gutter? He doesn't care about the gutter. The ones in the gutter got themselves in the gutter. He doesn't have, he doesn't have to worry about them. Amen. He's worried about you. Amen. You fine upstanding people with a Bible under your arm. You're the ones he's going after. Amen. And people walk around like the devil is, you know, this fire-breathing dragon or this Sasquatch that just lives out somewhere in the woods and attacks other people and not us or you. Or, hey, man. He's after the church people. He's after the separated people. He's after the people that want God. He's subtle, man. He's cunning and deceitful. You see it in chapter 13. Want to see it? Verse 1. This is a king's son. Are you a king's son? All right. We're on the right page. And it came to pass after this, meaning after all this stuff goes on with uh, David and Nathan and Uriah and Bathsheba and the baby. And it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. You see right here, Amnon, this king's son, is in the throes of some ungodly desires. We'll just leave it at that. He's thinking about doing some horrible stuff. Verse 13. 
This is a great line right here. But Amnon had a friend. Woo! That could be the opening chapter to many a person's demise. But Amnon had a friend, verse 13. But Amnon had a friend. And you see in this friend, whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very, see that word? Subtle man. The subtle man seduces the king's son into acting on his evil urges. If he was really a friend, you know what he would have done? He would have smacked Amnon upside the head and said, get out of here, go take a cold shower and go run a marathon and move 500 miles from this place because what you're thinking about is wicked as the devil's hind leg. But he had a friend who just came in and just, look at verse 4. Why art thou being the king's son lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me? And he tells him, see verse 5, and he starts to help him plot how to accomplish this dastardly deed. And the thing I want to tell you, Christian, is the devil will not come as a roaring lion. He's going to seduce you as an angel of light. He's subtle, right? Subtle. And that word subtle, just so you know, appears three times in the Bible. And I want to look at them. Those three times in the Bible reveal the devil's ways and his unholy trinity. You know the first one? We don't have to turn to all of them. First one is Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than a beast of the field which the Lord God had made. You know what that points to? That points to the, the father of lies, right? That's our picture of Satan himself, an imitation God, right? God the Father... There's Satan, the father of lies. He's called subtle. Now look at verse number three again. But Adam had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. Notice the second time it shows up. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 3. It's the subtle man. You know that's a picture of? That's a picture of the Antichrist. The man of sin. Satan in the flesh. Hey, have you not read Psalm 41? You want to look at it? You can look at Psalm 41. You go verse 9. Psalm 41 verse 9. Do you know who the Antichrist is likened to in Psalm 41 verse 9? The Psalm 41 verse 9, the Antichrist is likened to a wicked friend. Amnon had a friend, a very subtle man. Psalm 41.9, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. That's a prophecy of the Antichrist. Judas dipping the sop at the table, who, did, who ate bread with him, lifting up his heel against him. He was a very subtle man. The Antichrist could be a very subtle man. He's not going to show up on the scene as some pierced, tatted, you know, monster, you know, some leftist woke lunatic. He's going to show up as a conservative, clean, you know, upright, traditional individual. Remember, Hitler was conservative. Hitler came from the right, not the left. So just be mindful of that, right? So this guy, he was a subtle man. He's going to come in. He could walk into a church service in a three-piece suit, and you'd never think there was anything wrong with him. He'd have that kind smile, that twinkle in his eyes, that gentle voice, and you wouldn't think anything because people are stupid. They don't read the Bible. The Bible lets you know the one that doesn't look like it is is probably the one that it is because he's subtle. What did Jesus call Judas? 
when he kissed him. Friend, wherefore art thou come? Right? He said that in Matthew 26. As he's betraying him, he says, friend. I think when I picture that scene, I see Jesus kind of look at the camera. Friend. Almost to tell all of us, hey, the one who looks like your friend, that's the one who's the traitor. That's the one who's the deceiver. Right? Go to Proverbs chapter 7. Let me show you the last one. So we had serpent, that's a picture of the father. Antichrist, that's a picture of the son, right? The, the wicked son, right? The Antichrist is the Satan incarnate. That just leaves the spirit, right? A subtle spirit. Proverbs 7.11. Oh, I need a Slurpee. Proverbs 7.11. Proverbs 7.11. Let me get there with you. Proverbs 7.11. It's talking about a spirit typified by a woman. And it says, she is loud and stubborn, her feet about, that's not it, where is it? Oh, 10, I'm sorry, 10. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. That is a picture, the female spirit, the Holy Spirit is pictured and typified as a female guiding the house. And the unholy spirit is pictured as a harlot, a woman who's a harlot trying to seduce people. That's the only three times the word subtle pops up. And it's all about the devil dealing with people. The father of lies, that subtle friend who betrays and tricks the king's son, and that spirit that's trying to seduce travelers who are going on their way and trying to seduce king's sons to joining their bed, her bed. It's subtle. Go to Proverbs 27, 6. You're in the neighborhood. Let's look at this one. You say, wow, what is that? That's God writing the Bible. That's God just tracing some things out for you. Proverbs 27, 6. Ready? Here it is. Good verse. Good advice. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. That one that strokes you, that may not be your friend, but that one that could tell you a hard truth and kind of like, you know, even if it might cost you the friendship, you know what? That's a real friend. But the kisses, Judas kiss of an enemy are deceitful. They're subtle. Don't be stupid. It just wouldn't be smart. Right? Don't be stupid. Right? Make sure you realize that the devil doesn't come with a pitchfork and horns. He comes as a friend. Amnon had a friend. Now let's finish in 2 Samuel. I got one more point, and I just want to leave you with this thought, um, or this little piece here. <clears throat> 2 Samuel chapter 13. I want to, my last point would cover chapters 14 to 19. And in chapters 14 to 19, we learn about Absalom the Antichrist. Absalom the Antichrist. Now, we said the book is all about David, right? It's all about David's kingship, right? I said that about 40 minutes ago, right? Hey, Just some, thank you, brother. Thank you. I'm, I'm like, everybody's like, did you? Are you trying to trick us? Being subtle, Pat. Right, yeah, I'm being obvious, right? It's about a kingship, right? So in a book that's about David's kingship, it would make sense that the next prominent character is Absalom, a great type of antichrist. He has almost, he has more narrative. Next to David, Absalom is probably one of the most prominent characters in the book. Because it's a book about David's kingship, so who's right after him? Absalom, the antichrist. Now, look at 2 Samuel chapter 13. Now, Absalom gets revenge on his brother Abnon. He gets him killed, and he runs away. I want you to notice where he runs to. 2 Samuel 13, 37. I want to show you some areas where Absalom is a great, great type of the Antichrist. And in the Bible, 
Who's the main character in the Bible? Jesus Christ. You know who the second main character is? The Antichrist. That's how the Bible's written. The second main character in your Bible. The next prominent character in your Bible is the Antichrist because he's right there with him. He's trying to copy and usurp him. Right? So just like this book is about David, Absalom is right there in terms of like prominence and having a lot said about him. So 2 Samuel 13, 37, the last... uh, at the end of the chapter says, But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. See, why did he go to Geshur? Turn to chapter 3 of the book. Go to chapter 3. Why when Absalom ran away from David and the kingdom, he ran to Geshur and he ran to the king of Geshur? 2 Samuel 13, 3. Yeah, 13. um, No, I'm sorry. 3, 3. Chapter 3. My mind is like running 10 steps ahead of my mouth. Chapter 3, verse 3. Let me say it slower. Chapter 3, verse 3. Forgive me. Thank you for bearing with me. And it's listing here some of David's sons. Verse 3. And his second, Kyliab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal the Carmelite, and the third, Absalom. Watch it, please. The son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. You know why he ran back to Geshur? Because that's where half of his family was from. You know where Geshur is today? Geshur is present-day Syria. Absalom is a half-breed. He's got some Syrian blood in him, just like the Antichrist is going to be Syrian mixed in there. You just keep that in mind. Now, what about his name? Now, we could study Absalom for weeks. I'm just like throwing a little bit in you just to whet your spiritual appetites. What does his name mean? Absalom. Abba Shalom. His name means father of peace. Abba Shalom. Absalom. That's what his name means. You know what the Bible says about the Antichrist in Daniel 11.21? He shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. He's going to come in with peace. All the world's getting so crazy. All the world's getting so crazy. It's just waiting for somebody to step out and say, peace be with you. Let's just settle this whole thing down. Let's just restore order. For when they shall say peace and safety, right? That's what the world wants. They want peace. I'm holding it like this. You ever, you ever been somewhere where they held their fingers like this? I remember that. Like the bowman shoot his arrows, right? You ever read Revelation 6 where a guy goes forth conquering without an, with a bow and no arrows? A bowman that goes out to conquer and he's not shooting arrows? How does he conquer? With peace. Peace. That's how he gets you, with peace. Peace. Now, I'm just going to throw this out there because I just couldn't help but throw it out there. I'm going to get myself in trouble. But I used to go to a church, put that in quotes, where the priest in the ceremony, the mass, was called Father. You know what he would tell everybody to do? Right around the first third? Let us offer one another the sign of peace. Pax Romana, right? Peace be with you. I remember being that altar boy and holding up that book, and that Roman Catholic Church would end every Mass with the Father saying, Go in peace. Abba Shalom, Father of peace. You say, what's that mean, Pat? You think about it, let me know. Let's just digest it for a little while. 
But let's get, we'll finish practical. What can we learn about the advances of the devil from Absalom the Antichrist? What does it teach us? I just put that in there to like whet your appetite, get you thinking. I don't want you like looking at, don't look at all the shadows, but I'll tell you, man, in all the wars and all the woke stuff and all of this, you know what organization is just sitting pretty? That Roman Catholic Church is just sitting there. Quiet. Ready to strike. Just just for consumption. Just to community strike on the YouTube channel. I'll take it. But just remember, she's that harlot is drunk with the blood of the martyrs. She didn't suddenly just change after Vatican II, you know, and just in the 60s, she said, Oh, I'll never do this again. You just wait. You just wait. You just wait. In the name of peace. By peace. Right? Oh, okay. Before I really get thrown off the internet, um, let's. So, let's I'm going to show you a few things about the devil from here that you can learn. Verse number two. Oh no, go to Second Samuel chapter fifteen. I'm going to give you a few quick things just to kind of be instructive here. I'll end a little bit devotionally because I've probably alienated half the people watching, and the thought police are going to come and take me to room one ten. Um, <laughs> some of you know that book, right? Call me Winston. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 2. All right? First thing I want to show you about the devil here. And Absalom, now here is Absalom going in for the kill. 2 Samuel 15, 2. And Absalom rose up early. You know what I want to show you first? Number one, Satan is prompt. Ooh, the devil starts early. He starts early with your kids. He starts early with your grandkids. He starts early, man. He's up, Absalom is up early, and he's at that gate to start his seducing process. I'll tell you what, uh, I don't know who said it, but somebody said it. You know the first one to church is? The devil. He's the first one to the church house. He's scoping it out. He wants to see what, he, what devilment he can do. He starts early. Just remember, the devil is not going to wait to the last minute. He's going to start early. Look at number two about him. It says, and Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. I want you to see number two. Satan is prompt and Satan is poised. The devil knows how to sneak into the position of influence. He's right next to the gate. Everybody's got to come past him to see the king. And he plants himself there, and he positions himself there in a great spot to get into people's minds and ears and hearts. He'll do it through the school system. He'll do it. Through, he, he will put it. He'll do it through government. He'll do. He'll put himself in places. He'll poison and position himself. Why? So that influence can just start wa- poisoning the water hole and just seducing people left and right. Go to verse number three. Here's another one about the devil. And Absalom said unto him, See. <gasps> Thy matters are good and right, but there's no man deputed of the king to hear thee. See? Oh, you're good. You're right. You know what I see about Satan? He's positive. You walk up, I'm one of the tribes of Israel. Oh, that's good. What is the first word out of the devil's mouth? Yea, hath God said. The devil's first word is positive. The power of positive thinking. You know what that'll lead you? Straight to hell. 
Just keep thinking, I'm okay, I'm okay. Are you okay, Stephen? Right? I'm okay, we're all okay. Right? That's the power of positive thinking. You know what people don't like? A negative truth. God said, thou shalt not. God said, repent or else. God said, ye must be born again. And the flesh does not like negative truth. They like positive. There's many ways to heaven. There's many ways to get to God. You want this one? You want that one? As long as it works for you. You know what? That sounds nice. That keeps everybody. We don't have to fight. That's your God. This is my God. You know what Jesus said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You know what they wanted to do? Kill him. But that was the truth. Right? But devil is positive. The first word out of his mouth was, Yes! Yea, hath God said. Be instructive. Verse number four. Absalom said, moreover, Oh, probably got pious. Had to fix his collar. Got real pious. He said, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. Here he is. You know who Satan is? Satan's for the people. Laodicea, man. You know what it means? Justice for the people. I'm a social justice warrior. Really? Have you read your Bible? Um, Be careful of that. Verse number five. Keep going. And it was so... I'm having a good time here. i got to be careful. And it was so... None of this stuff is in my notes. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him, and there it is, kissed him. Satan's a phony. He'll deceive you, not with a, with a slap, but with a kiss. Luke 22, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Proverbs 27, we read before, the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Watch out for that Judas kiss, man. Watch out for that kiss. Be careful, don't let her get you. Don't let that spirit get you. Kiss the sun, but don't let that other spirit make contact with you. Verse number 6. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Verse number 13. 13. And there came a messenger to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. What do I see here? Satan has a purpose. You know what his purpose is? To steal your heart. Because that's what God values. My son, give me thine heart. You know what God wants? He doesn't want your bank account. He doesn't want anything. You know what he wants more than anything? Because if he gets this, he gets everything. He wants your heart. Do you know what the devil's aiming for? He wants to steal your heart. Make your heart cold towards him. Make your heart apathetic. Make your heart lazy. Make your heart full of sin that it gets so hard, God can't penetrate anymore. And you just, you turn a shoulder to the brethren. You walk out of church. You close your Bible. And he's laughing at at God while he does it. He doesn't want to just, you know, steal government. He wants you to worship him. He's after your heart. You know what you see in verse number Seven, here's the last thing I'll say about him. I think I said one, two, three, four, five, six, seven things about the way he acts that I could see in Absalom, the Antichrist. And the seventh is in verse number seven. And it came to pass after 40 years. Satan is patient 
And Satan is persistent. The devil will take his time and keep coming. He'll keep coming. He's patient, man. He knows he just has to change a little bit here in your Bible, change a little bit there. He knows he just had to do this to government, get people thinking this way in the social square, just a little bit at a time, just incremental changes, and pretty soon that serpent is just wrapping himself around you, just slithering into bed with you. It almost feels interesting. It's, and all of a sudden he starts to squeeze, and you can't breathe, and you try to get out, and your ribs crack, and you, you suffocate. Because that subtle serpent has just been winding you up. And he was, Absalom was willing to take 40 years. Listen, man, the chickens we see coming home to roost today, those seeds were sowed in the 60s, man. This is not something new. This stuff has been like wed into society. And God help us if Jesus Christ doesn't come back. Because I'm going to tell you from experience, the voting block that's coming up, they don't have a clue. They're so far gone, they couldn't think for themselves if their lives depended on it. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Because he's just been like winding up, taking his time, go two steps forward, three steps back, three steps forward, two steps back. He goes, I'll give you Roe v. Wade, but he's getting plenty of other stuff going, guys. He's got plenty of other irons in the fire. I'm not boasting on him. I'm just telling you, wake up. Because this is how he rolls. He's patient. And he'll take his time. Now go to chapter 18. We'll finish right here. 18, 18. Final few other connections. And I'm not going to read all these verses here, but I'll just point them out to you just to finish on time. 2 Samuel 18, verse 9 to 10. So the whole, you know, he steals the kingdom. They come back to fight. They, you know, all this conflict happens. I want you to read verse 9 and 10. I want you to notice, please, that like Judas, Absalom dies after hanging in a tree. Right? Verse 9, And Absalom met the servants of David, and Absalom rode upon a mule, and the mule went under the thick bows of a great oak, and his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between the heaven and the earth, and the mule that was under him went away, and a certain man saw it and told Joab, and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. Lester Roloff preached a great message years ago, and the mule walked on. Great message. You can look it up. And the mule walked on. What does the Bible say? Cursed is everyone that hangeth in a tree. Or on a tree, I should say. And it says of Judas, that Judas walked out of that Sanhedrin, cast down the pieces of silver in the temple, and departed, and went, and hanged himself. Absalom was hanging in a tree. Judas was hanging in a tree. Verse number 17. And they took Absalom and cast him into a great pit. (laughs) There's another connection. Like Judas, Absalom is cast into a pit after his defeat. That Antichrist, see Revelation 19 and 20, he's going to get thrown into a pit. A devil gets put in a pit after his defeat. Verse 18, very interesting. Absalom, you see the end of the verse? Absalom had his own place. Isn't that interesting? Just like Judas. Acts one twenty five. Judas might go to his own place. All kinds of connections. Just trying to give you a few. But I want you to leave you with is a positive, I guess. Something to kind of bless your heart. You see verse 33? Now they kill Absalom, right? He's hanging in the oak, and Joab and his men, they, they mutilate him. 
They just massacre them. Like those fowls of the air are going to pick at the flesh of the Antichrist in Revelation. Those guys just start sticking this guy with darts. And I mean, his body must have been mangled. Like the Antichrist's body is going to be mangled after the Battle of Armageddon. But it says in verse 33, when the king finds out that Absalom died, this one who stole his kingdom, slept with some of his wives and concubines, and reaped all this devilment, look what David says. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. You know what that shows me? The heart of David, who would die for his enemy. He's a man after God's own heart who died for his enemies. And the Son of David, Jesus Christ, died for the ones that spit upon Him, bruised Him, mocked Him, turned against Him, and He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Would God that I had died for Thee. My Savior did die for me, so that I could be not His enemy anymore, but His friend, be on His side. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for for that heart. Amen. Next time, Lord willing, we will finish up the last few chapters of...